0: You are listening to Grit and Grace, where I'm sharing my entrepreneurial journey with you and bringing stories to you of the most amazing women that are crushing it in business and in life. My name is Taverly, and I'm a social impact entrepreneur where I help businesses grow their community impact and their bottom line through their partnerships with nonprofit organizations. I'm also the founder of Taverly's Tribe, a brand new group of female experts that, from all different fields, are helping women grow to their highest level of potential. Join us on this journey by downloading the Himalaya app, which is free, and follow us so we can keep you up to date on all of the new shows that are coming out. Welcome to my show. Welcome back and get ready to learn today, people. We have a top notch expert, author, speaker, and consultant in the field of vision therapy and developmental optometry. For 30 years, our guest today has been improving vision for children and adults. She works with cutting edge, breakthrough methods to rewire around brain injuries or even perceptual and processing deficits. She has gone through tremendous growth as a cancer survivor that led her to questioning her own mind-body connection, which transformed her own healing through visual therapy. Her mission for herself and her patients, and the topic she has sought after the most to speak on, is visualizing, declaring, and taking action. She's an award-winning author for the series See It, Say It, do it, which regardless of what industry you work in, it can transform your life too. So welcome, Dr. Lynn Heller. oh my gosh, I was gonna say Hellerstein, but it's Hellerstein Stein. Stein. Hellerstein, whichever <laughs> side of the family. <laughs> yes. And you know, just, just a second ago, I just clarified that and I laugh. I just sometimes names are funny. So it's Hellerstein. Correct. Can I just call you Doctor Lynn? You may. Okay, thank much. you. I feel way better with that, so I don't butcher your name every time. But thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: Truly my pleasure. Thank you you
0: I think that we met through camp experience that's right yeah with with Betsy which who she's been on this show too Mm -hmm. which she's amazing she's a connector of all the people right yeah right um I really felt like first of all I had a chance to read your book and I had a chance to meet with you previous to this and you know I've, I've I do, I do some research on my guests, so I may have looked up some information about you. I may have Uh-oh. seen some previous talks. <laughs> so I think that one thing I find really fascinating about you is that your expertise in the area of vision and optometry is, is no question, right? That has been a focus area of your life. But I feel that you went through such a transformational journey as a cancer survivor that it opened up a whole new area of you combining your expertise to the outcome of people in life and sports and in everything, not just in, you know, do you have twenty twenty vision or do you need glasses or do you need contacts? It's so much bigger than that that I'm just so excited for our audience to hear your story.
1: Well, thank you because it gave me a whole new perspective of really uh, what it's like to be a patient mm. and to suffer from you know, difficulties not only in vision, but the emotion around the, the problems in vision. And uh, I think it made me a much better doctor mm. and also became part of my healing.
0: So talk to me about your original, like, education. Where did you go to school? Like, what made you cho- choose vision to begin with? Like, opto- it's optometry, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, my dad, actually, I'm a third generation optometrist in my family third generation ever, right?
0: That's fascinating.
1: And as far as I know, the third woman optometrist in the state of Colorado. Really? Yes.
0: I'm Why sp- are there no not more women in the field?
1: Well, back then... <laughs> I know you're too young, probably to know that.
0: You know, I might look that, but I'm I, I definitely in the middle-aged years. Let me clarify. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, I graduated in 1977 from Pacific University College of Optometry. And optometry is a four-year graduate program after four years of undergraduate. And at that time, it was very, very rare to see women doctors of any kind. Mm. So in my class of 69, there were six women in my class and they thought we were going to overthrow the school. I'm not kidding you. The, the professors were like, well, the women, they're going to just get married and they'll have babies and we're going to train all these people that aren't going to get in the workforce. And, you know, that's the messages that we got. And, um, you know, I went to optometry school really because of my own personal vision problems. I was a good student. I loved to learn. I knew how to read. But after 10, 15 minutes of reading, I was sound asleep. I mean, it made no difference what time of day it was, Uh, I just couldn't sustain reading.
0: And when did you recognize that that's what was happening?
1: Well, you know, this was even in elementary school, but what I did was avoided reading, so I didn't really recognize it was my vision at all. I just learned to hate reading. You know, I I always wondered when my sister would take a book on a vacation, and that's an oxymoron, why ruin a vacation with reading?
0: (laughs) So, I mean, that is just, I, gosh, I, I, as soon as you say that, I know a lot of people that feel that way around, about reading. Mm-hmm.
1: And mm. I'm sorry to say it often gets worse as you get older. Uh, um, and so I just, luckily I had skills to learn different ways. I was good at listening, very organized. When you're in the maths and sciences, you can, um, really have a lot of visual problems and do well because you do problems and you look around and, you know, out of eight years of college, my most dreaded course... Can you guess what my most dreaded course oh, was? Oh, no. English? English Lit 101.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yes. You
1: know, why would anybody expect me to read all of those books in a semester?
0: And not easy books either. They're not like... They're not fluff books. They're You know, literature is, is serious reading.
1: I know. And so I made it through that. And, there, you know, calculus, physics, chemistry, none of that... Was a, uh, nearly as difficult for me as, as the reading was. And so I went to optometry school because I started really understanding the importance of vision and learning and reading. Uh-huh. Yet after optometry school and graduating, um, I started on this course of thinking that, you know, I could solve all these kids' reading problems. And I want to make sure, you know, everybody understands not all reading problems are caused by your vision. But it's estimated that one out of four school-aged children have some kind of vision problem that's going to impact their learning. And many of these kids aren't even diagnosed.
0: So I'm going to come back to that in a second because I just have to tell something really funny, totally off topic, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but you'll notice I sound a lot different now than I did when we first started. Did you realize what I just did? You moved back. I had my microphone turned the wrong way. (laughs) So I just, I was telling Dr. Lin when we started this, um, when we were setting up that I don't consider myself a technical expert, even though I have really good equipment, but it really helps if you have it turned the right way. So anyway, carry on. Um, I just, for those that are listening, if there's a dramatic difference in how I sound now, it's because I have my mic the right way. Anyway, I might be blushing a little bit just in my own blondness today, but I want to, I want to just go back to that topic because when you talk about one in four children having Vision challenges that are undiagnosed. Don't we do screening in school? Like I did screening. Like I was definitely screened at a young age. But is that not is that not enough? Or do we not screen kids anymore?
1: Well, that's a, a, you know the very common typical question. Why did you miss my kid? He had a screening at school. Had a screening at the pediatrician's. Yes, we do screenings, but for the most part, the screening is done at twenty feet the old Snellen eye chart, which was uh, created way back in 1860-something. And all that does is you're looking at a letter that's about an inch high at 20 feet and gives you a reading as to can you see at distance. You can have crossed eyes, double vision, blurred vision, and still pass that screening chart. So if that's the only um, test, and it's important because you'll pick up, you know, some kids that don't see well... But the majority of young kids with reading problems see just fine. They see 20-20. So they're missed time and time again on vision screenings. Yet they may have problems tracking and focusing, converging, eye-hand coordination, depth perception, Mm -hmm. processing. That screening test just is not going to pick that up.
0: I think that that's so interesting what you just said. So, because that's, that's the areas of the work that you do that people don't know about if you have not needed it or have, have not been in the field. Like this is, this is so fascinating. Okay. So when you, when you finished school and you knew you didn't love to read and you obviously had optometrists in your family, did they encourage you to go into the field or was it you that wanted it? Um, I was always on course to be a pediatrician, actually. Really? Yep. Oh, you would have been a fabulous
1: pediatrician. Well, I love kids. That's yeah. my forte. Yeah. And, um, but right at the end, I also wanted to have a family, and I just did not want to share my nighttime and in, in um, night hours and calls. And at the last minute, I chose to go into optometry, which I hadn't even told my dad that. Uh, but then I ended up really getting interested in pediatric optometry, so I still was able to deal a lot with the kids,
0: but through the world of vision. Mm, that's good. That's interesting. Um. So in that time when you went to school and there was just such a limited amount of women, because I want to go back to that comment, because I, I still think that that exists today. I still think that women going into a professional um, type of education system where their majority are men, there is always that thought of, or even companies that hire women that are newly out of school that aren't yet married and don't have kids, you know, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, should I make this hire? Should I Should I bring this person on? Because they might just leave one day to have... Have a, have a family, um, did that challenge you when you were in school or after school? Well, it challenged me all through. First of all,
1: it really drove me to be better than the best kind of thing. I have to prove that I'm capable of doing this is what you know kept running through my mind. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, when we were taking contact lens courses, the professor would always say that he just didn't think women could fit contact lenses because it took a lot of beard stroking to figure out what to do and we heard this over and over again finally the six women got you know pretty ticked off on it and we decided one day that we we went to the costume shop we all bought beards and then we wore dresses to class which we never did and all the guys in the class sat in the back and we sat in the front row stroking our beards (laughs) And the guy thought it was, you know, our, our fellow students thought it was hysterical. And I hate to say the professor never got it. Seriously. He thought it was cute. And then he says, okay, take him off. And he never got it and just walked out of class that day.
0: Seriously, yeah. I try to imagine what it would be like now if that happened. That would be a news story. There would be a movement if that happened. No kidding. So you you have lived through the times when women were still looked at as just because of their gender as something less than than what men were. And and look at you. You know you you are crushing it. You have you're a survivor. Women. You know we have the ability to go well beyond what we probably need to do. And, and a lot of that just comes from what society has. Has dictated our value, and I hope that that's changing. My my point in bringing this up is that I hope that that's different now, especially because we're coming up on International Women's Day this week, and I'd like to think that that has that we've changed, that we've evolved. Well, I sure, I really think we have.
1: Um, I remember one of my very first patients. I'd go in and introduce myself, do the whole exam. It was a preacher. And at the end, he goes, wow, that's the best exam I've ever had. Thanks so much. When's the doctor coming in? (laughs) So, you know, it followed me through many, many years. But now uh, we have a program through my international organization where we go... I started this program when I was uh, president of the board. And we go to all the optometry schools in the uh, United States and Canada. And we talk about vision therapy because that's... Getting squeezed out of the curriculum and we want to make sure it's still alive and well. And when I go to the optometry schools, now some of the schools, 70, 80% of the classes are women. Some of them back eastern Canada are about 50-50, but I am still shocked when I go there and, you know, it's there's a line for the bathroom for women now. You know, it used to not yeah. be a problem. But I do think it's changing because you look at the population of the new students coming through in optometry school, high percentage of women. And, you know, on one side you want to be very accepted and and, and you certainly make your imprint in the field. On the other side, it's a wonderful field for women because you can be part-time uh, if you want. Uh, one of the reasons I want to be my own practice, I wanted the time that I needed to take care of my kids. Mm. So I could work... I worked nights and weekends sometimes on my projects... But four o'clock, if they had a ball game or they had gymnastics, I took off and I would take them and be with them. You got to create your own schedule. I did. And that usually means working more, working harder, working at, you know, off times. But I was always available. I could take my kids into my office and I always had a couch in one of my offices. And if the kids were sick, they'd lay on the couch and, you know, stay with me.
0: So not only were you like a groundbreaking woman in this field, uh, you are still crushing it as a mom and building a business and doing it on your terms. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, honestly, Dr. Lynn, I hope that you reflect back at your career and know that you paved the path for other women. Because one thing I know for sure, after the amount of like 250 plus interviews I've done with women is that if we don't have another woman to look at and know that what we want to achieve is actually possible, we, we don't. We, we, we think it's not possible. We need to see other women being successful and pushing the boundaries of what they've been told is ca- they're capable of. And you did that.
1: Well, yes. Thank you. I did that at a cost. Mm. Um, I remember on one of my business trips thinking about, I better someday write a book about doing it all, thinking that, oh, ho oh, ho, I did it all kind of thing. Work, management of, uh, the office and the kids and my life. And then shortly after that, things really, you know, started breaking down for me personally. Mm. So tell us about it. What, what, yeah. what happened? So I started getting this, this kind of dream image that I was on a freight crane, uh, freight train ready to crash. I was uh, close to 50. And because now I was involved in you know, the political side of our field, I was uh, writing papers, I was speaking all over the, the world, running my practice. My kids were young, and thinking I was doing it all, and I was, but I was really getting stressed. And and I knew that I needed to make a change. I knew it. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know where to get off the tr- train, basically. And uh, I guess when you put it out there, the universe responds to you. And what happened at the age of 50, you know, the good old age, time for a colonoscopy, um, I ended up being diagnosed with a tumor in my colon. And that just totally, you know, blew my life apart. I mean, like, what? I don't have time. What, schedule? Surgery? I mean, it did not fit into my life, did not fit in my schedule. And um, But I knew how to do that.
0: And were you married at the time?
1: Like, did you have a support system at home? Well, it's interesting. I, I was married, and um, my kids now were in their teens, young 20s. <clears throat> Excuse me. and um, But they were off to school, and my then husband was, you know, busy, and i never thought about needing a support system i you know mm. being somebody i can do it all what do i need somebody there to do it right
0: you were independent you you had you had sailed through life knowing that you had your own back
1: correct and re- now looking back it's like hmm i didn't really build my community very well yeah. I had a wonderful family my my parents were still alive i had siblings but we're off in our own thing, and I always put up the great front. I can do it. I can do it all. I don't need any help.
0: And do you feel like your family received that message? Like you were the person that didn't need, um didn't need help. Like did they interpret it the same way that you felt that you were projecting it?
1: I think so. I think I always gave them because I was always there for everybody else, mm. taking care, and I could just do do it by myself, including my staff. You know. Um, Delegating was hard for me as I was still building my office. Um, So again, uh, it was that shell that needed to be shattered, really. Uh, And since I didn't know how to do it, I got help doing it by being laid up for weeks. And then I became allergic to almost all foods I couldn't digest after surgery. And that became a mantra for my life. I couldn't digest food. I couldn't digest life. And that's what started me on my course. That was kind of... I think my lowest part, my lowest part of life, where I lost myself, I didn't know who I was, the labels of mother, optometrist, writer, speaker, you know, none of that stuff made any difference anymore. I was now in a place of who am I and, you know, what is my purpose of life here? And how do I get out of this? And so it was during that time, because of all the food problems I had, I started seeing some alternative healthcare people. Because my colon surgeon, who saved my life, when I asked her about health and wellness, this was back in 2002, she said, you know, my parents take vitamins and stuff. I don't know much about that. Really? <laughs> and not one wow. GI doctor ever asked about what I ate.
0: Really? Yep.
1: I had IBS, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome before the surgery, and not one doctor ever asked what I ate. They put me on pills or this or that. So after surgery and not being able to eat, you know, I was really fearful, one, I'd never leave my house again because I needed to be very close to the bathroom kind of thing, much less go to work, much less travel, much less go to a conference. You know, that's where I was at after surgery.
0: So why did the food allergies begin post-surgery or, yeah, I mean, why? Well, just before surgery,
1: I had been to a nutritionist for IBS symptoms and she had started me on gluten-free way back in 2002. Which wasn't the trend then. Which was not at all the trend then. And um, so I was beginning to see I had some food sensitivities. Never got around to finding out more because the surgery thing came up. And what I believe now is that any time you you mess with a microbiome, your gut—that's um, really our second brain. That's the—that's really where a lot of illness starts. And I think um, my motto became never irritate an irritable bowel <laughs> 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 because that's what happened. Right. And it not only affected my digestion; it affected my thinking. I felt like many of the patients that I diagnosed with uh, vision problems with brain injury, many of my brain injury patients, you know, they're confused, they can't drive in, you know, a lot of traffic, it's hard to make decisions. I could have sworn, in fact, I asked my colon surgeon, did you slip up and maybe take out a little part of my brain? Mm. And she looked at me like I was out of my mind, and that's actually how I felt, like I couldn't get back into my mind. And so it was during that time I started doing my own research and found a book called The Second Brain. And they started seeing there's so many neural receptors in the gut that have to do with emotion and and brain functioning. And started wondering how do my emotions impact my everyday functioning? Mm. How do my foods impact my emotions and started seeing I need to I need to look at this more carefully.
0: Mm, that is so interesting. Um, I think I mentioned to you before, I, I've been down this route of this exact exploration that you went through with my son. He, um, he started having seizures, like partial seizures when he was, I think, two. And by the time he was nine, we had started seeing reactions to the food. So from like, I would say from like 9 to 15, it was an intensive process of trying to figure out why is he having all these allergic reactions. And he did have anaphylaxis more than once. He did react and silly enough, it was like to a sugar snap pea or to an Oreo cookie because he's allergic to soy and he wanted it because he was a kid and he ate the Oreo cookie and had a reaction. We had to go through like undergo through a series of tests by food item to check his IGE level per food, which you know is not cheap and it's not fun for a kid and, and we like reset his entire diet. And, you know, if I look back at the whole timeline of what happened, you know, the moment that we got control of his eating and we we changed, we took the things out of his diet that were causing him to be ill, he stopped having seizures. And do you know that at the time, and this might be different now, and I, so anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, but at that time, he's 22 now, but between the ages of like nine and 11, I asked several doctors, like, what is the correlation between reactions to food and how it impacts his brain, right? Because, you know, having a seizure disorder basically just means we all have electricity in our brain and somebody with seizures that threshold is just lowered. So they have more physical reactions to that, that electricity in the brain to make it really simplistic. So when you're having a compromised immune system, that threshold lowers, which means more seizures can occur. So I would ask that question, like, why is there, like, what is the study? What does the data tell us about, you know, reactions from food in the stomach to that seizure threshold? And they said, Oh, nobody's ever studied that before. There's no, there's no data out there. And I'm like, but everything in our body is impacted by what we eat. Why are we not looking at how that impacts seizures? So I, I, I can honestly tell you that I now, looking back, because I'm we know more now than we did then, but I, I strongly believe that his seizures were likely the result of that lowered threshold because of having reactions to food that his body was just not prepared to handle. Well, I truly believe that. I see so many
1: of my patients with brain injury or or autism or hyperactivity that um, their foods greatly impact things but there's still a problem trying to find medical support from a lot of doctors mm. to put you on the right track and the food industry isn't helping at all no it's not so i i study functional nutrition quite a bit because it's still important for me personally but i'm especially interested for my patients but but to to take us back to you know when i was you know having so much problem digesting and i was out of work for a while um, I remember sitting, vividly, sitting at the kitchen table reading the Rocky Mountain News. Those of you from Denver who are old enough <laughs> yeah. might remember the Rocky Mountain News. Still a printed copy? It was a printed it, copy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was a printed yeah. <laughs> copy. And seeing a little ad in the newspaper wanted subjects for IBS study. And I thought that's very weird because usually they want subjects for depression or menopause or hormone stuff because there's really not medication for IBS, especially back then. So I responded to the ad. They, you know, call, leave a message, strictly confidential. And I get a call back, hi, this is Audrey. I know you. You've treated all my friends' kids in vision therapy. And, oh. and went to school with, you know, and so much for confidentiality. <laughs> right, right. But Audrey, who is now is a friend and, and uh, really uh, is a camp sister as well, Audrey Boxerl, mm-hmm. uh was doing a study on looking at meditation for chronic illness. She was doing her PhD study and she used IBS as a chronic illness. And so we would listen to these CDs three times a week, and keep a um, journal of symptoms. How was our gut, and and all of this kind of stuff. At the end of the study, first of all, I felt a lot better, and secondly, I really wanted to study more and get more of the meditations uh, from. Because we just got a blank CD, I didn't know who even did the CD. So I got the name of the person who created the CD, and I thought, well, let me see if she's got more. Available, or if I can study with her. so I look up on, look her up online. Of course, she's a patient of ours, and her daughter is being taught by my daughter in dance. Wow. And it was one of those things. This is when the synchronicity and just all that stuff so started beautiful. started happening. So I went to study, uh, actually get therapy with her, treatment, not therapy, And she created a new system called RIM, releasing inner memories. And um, she'd be a great person for your podcast. She's worked with uh, Jack uh, Canfield. She writes a lot of the meditations mm-hmm. for Jack. Mm. And her work was so powerful. It's really about visualization in the body. In other words, if you say, man, I'm really stressed. I don't feel good. Instead of saying, what's the matter? Tell me. It's more scan your body. Where in your body is it calling to you?
0: And do you think, do you think that the words are the first, well, I know that you think the words are the first part of it, right? I mean, or do you think the visualization is the first part? I'll give you an example. So if I wake up today and say, oh my gosh, this is going to be such a long day. I have so much to do. I don't know. I'm going to be so tired tonight. I'm going to feel like, oh my gosh, it's going to be just so, it's going to be such a difficult day. Do you think that that has more impact than me thinking it? Well, that's really
1: a great question. I
0: think it's different for a lot of
1: people. I believe our thought, our inspired thoughts really start out as some type of imagery
0: mm. with
1: a language to confirm it. But that may not always be true.
0: Like audio processors. I have a friend that she processes everything verbally. So we'll be in the middle of a conversation. And this is Gigi, by the way. We'll be in the middle of a conversation and she'll be like, like, she's literally thinking out loud. It's, it's happening in her brain at the same time she's speaking. And I recognize that some people operate
1: that way. Well, it's very true. And when you talk about when I, you know, I said imagery, you can have visual, tactile, auditory Mm. imagery. So some people get a sense, a knowing. They hear it, hear a voice. We're talking about the voices, They see yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I talk about, you know, is it first words, and, you know, I do a lot of personal uh, growth education through groups like Landmark Education, which is all about languaging. Mm-hmm. And I keep running into this, well, it's really language describing my vision, but that's not how everybody works. So we can talk about more of that. I mean, more. I,
0: I so want to go into that. Um, I think that, I don't know if you've listened to, the shows that I did in November, I did a series called Sacred November, and so I, I have done a lot of interviews with women that I practice in ritual with. So I have a very strong spiritual practice, and I have, I don't use the word coven, but I, I say, I'll say I have sisters that we all believe in doing our best for ourselves, and we have rituals and practices together, and some are energy workers, and some work, you know, walk the high priestess path, and, and we're all kind of, you're talking the same language, right? We see things, we are just, we have evolved our own knowing to be able to crack ourselves open to that deeper wisdom that we have inside of us. And one thing that I like to say that I learned, it was the hardest lesson for me to learn, is that not everybody learns like I learn. Mm-hmm. And I i guess I just didn't know any differently. Like I remember, I, I think I was 40 before I actually figured out that not everybody feels what I feel or they don't have, or their feelings are just different the way they process it. And Boy, that was that's that's a big part of my own growth is understanding what you just said, which is that it's different for everybody. Well, I learned that the hard way. Hard way, of course.
1: Um, when I used to give uh, workshops on visualization, I'd always say, "Close your eyes, imagine, see this." And those are all visual words. And my sister, who's an occupational therapist who works in my office, kept saying, "I don't see anything. It's black." Yes, you do. Come on, you could. No, I don't. Mm. And she got so frustrated and furious, I mean, she almost left. <laughs>
0: well, she And she's your sister. So. And You're she's sister. my sister. There's the sister dynamic. There that, you but. go.
1: And what I learned from her, because she's tactile, she's a body, you know, she can does body energy work. She's all about kinesthetic tactile. So she would have a knowing, a sense. She would get imagery through her, another sensory system. I didn't understand it because that's not how I get it. And what you said, Taverly, is I think it's what happens in schools all the time. The teacher teaches in their learning style. It's their strength. That's how they get it. But what about kids that don't learn it that way? It doesn't mean that they even have a learning disability. They, you know, it's like you say, I love you and I hug you. And you might say, you never tell me that you love me. I said, I just showed you. But you didn't tell me, you know, and you—that's the source of many um, personal relationship problems of different sensory processing, which then really guides our language to use. I see it, I, under, I imagine it, versus keep in touch, mm. talk to you later, listen to the words, and they're all different sensory systems. And you know who really understands as well are salespeople. Mm. If they can figure out your sensory processing strength, they're going to show you the movie. They're not going to give you a, a CD or a MP3. They're going to show it to you, mm. unless you're an auditory person. Then they're going to make sure you have access to listen to it. So so those are you know some of the lessons that I learned along the way in, in my uh, healing and recovery.
0: So when you, so, and and thank you so much for sharing that because that's, that the part that you just talked about right there, which was, is the part that I have really appreciated so much about you, Dr. Lynn, that is, that is a transformation that you went through and now the work that you're doing and the impact you make on the world because of that is so significant. So I so honor that you have gone through that own learning and that you sought it out, that you realized, okay, wait a minute, this made me feel better. And this, there might be something to this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go keep learning. That evolution of continuing to seek knowledge for yourself is, I just deeply honor that in other women because it's, it's too easy to, to not do that. That is the harder path that you chose. So I, I thank you for your process of continuing to educate yourself because now look what you're doing. Well, thank you. And that's really what kicked off what
1: I created the, a process for me to heal through was through what I ended up calling the see it, say it, do it process of visualizing, declaring, and taking action. And that's what big businesses do. They have a vision of a new project. Then they have a mission statement, the saying, and then do it. They they make action plans. Mm. And my experience has been that I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, all people go through that process not in that order necessarily but if they leave any piece of that process out they're often unsuccessful f- frustrated and spinning wheels
0: i would i would say that the the answer to that is the successful ones even in life that's not just a business right. that is not just a business strategy it's i actually think for me it's how i live my life because i do a lot of things as you know i have You know, I have grown children that still live with me that I'm still taking care of. I'm also a daughter. Just, you know, just like you, we have families, we have big careers, we have, you know, we do public speaking and for me, I host more than one podcast. So in order for me to make all that happen, the first thing I have to do is create the vision of what that is. And for me, it also includes why, right? Because to me, the vision has to include why, because if we don't, if we don't have that why, then when shit gets hard it's really difficult to stay on task. <laughs> yeah. Any part of it, the why,
1: or the importance, the authenticity has to be behind every step of it. Mm. Can I share a story how that works? Yes. That yes, please. So the see it, say it,
0: do it process ended up being the name of my first book. See it, say it, do it. Which we will put a link to the show notes um, to your book. And also for anybody else, for those of you that are listening, I want to let you know now, let's take a moment to talk about where people can find you. It is Lynn Hellerstein.com. She's smiling, so I got it right. Woohoo! No, I didn't. it <laughs> was so close. I was so close. I will, it's just in case because I don't pronounce it right, I will put the link in the show notes. And also, do you have any social media where people can find you?
1: Uh, yes I have Facebook Lynn Hellerstein Hellerstein there I'm going to have her Hellerstein. It Hellerstein yep yeah and Twitter. If you go on my website, all the links to the all the other social medias there.
0: Okay, perfect. So, so everybody can yeah. com. Excellent. Okay, so I want I want people to know where they can reach you now. And the other thing I want to let our listeners know is that Lynn, Dr. Lynn and I are hanging out at Workability today, which is an amazing space. So thank you to Workability for hosting Grit and Grace at their location. It's an amazing space in downtown Denver. And you know what I really like about Workability is that not only do they have food and unlimited coffee and tea, they have dogs. They have dogs. So, I mean, it's a it's a startup shared co-working space and it is amazing. It's in Denver at 16th and Sherman Street. And so if you guys are looking for more information, I will put the address to workability and you should just call Caroline anyway and come in for a tour because it's amazing. So, now that we got that out of the way. Let's and get it back is to a beautiful it. place. It is. Yeah. yeah, it's nice. And I love having Grit and Grace here because not only is it in the heart of Denver, but the people that are here are amazing. Like there are so many entrepreneurs and forward-thinking creatives here that are running businesses. Like this is not just a fluffy space. This is this is where a lot of very, very, very advanced thinking in the next levels of business are happening. And just even being in that energy is amazing. Yeah. So okay, so back to where we were.
1: All right. So anyways, with the help and support of now building a community of my friends and my medical people and my alternative care people, my staff, I created I needed to create a process for me to recreate my life. That's really what it was about. Do you about. mean for for yourself or for you to teach others? For myself initially. Okay. And from that became the process to teach others. And that's what the see it, say it, do it process was about. And um, about that time, um, it's about 2008 now, that I had given an all-day course to national international conference on visualization. Because we use visualization a lot for kids and learning, you know, Better way to spell, reading comprehension, good readers see the story in their head, great athletes see themselves going through their athletic or musical kinds of performances. So I had given this whole day talk on it, and I remembered the very end. I thought, that's so great, somebody should write it down, but it's not going to be me because I hate to write. And sure enough, you know, go to a conference the next month, and the book ended up in my head as to see it, say it, do it. And I needed to write it. And it's not like I wanted to write it or I created to write it, but it was in my head. Once that was in my divine
0: head. intervention. It like was... I say, the universe is saying, Dr. Lynn, you just told me that you're not a writer. Guess what? You are a woman. You are. You <laughs> are. And I had done a lot of technical papers,
1: um, but this was all about much more creative and that, that didn't seem to be my strength. I was the technical writer.
0: I just love it. Actually, when you said that, you just had such a beautiful smile on your face because you are creative. <laughs> well, I never saw that
1: within. Yeah. You know, my sister was so creative. My kids are unbelievably creative. I'm a science person, you yeah. know. But no, that's what I found out. It's like your identity just got all cracked. You got Your whole identity got cracked multiple times in those years. Over and over. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I'm writing the book. And I get started. And um, my youngest daughter, Becky, I have two beautiful daughters, four grandkids where I'm there. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So Becky calls me and says, Mom, do you want to walk a marathon with me? And I am always so touched and honored when my kids ask me to do things. Of course, I said, yes. And um, of course, I didn't know how long a marathon was.
0: <laughs> I was say, that's a <laughs> lot of walking. And,
1: I, you know, sure, I've walked six, seven miles. I can do this. And, you know, a marathon's 26.2 miles. Mm-hmm. So that's also been one of the lessons I learned about, I say, saying yes with baggage. I'm always a yes person. Then it's like, oh, why did I do that? I don't want to do, you know, all that. So I got off the phone and the first thing I said, and you said you're the one who swears, but what
0: uh, I, I, I said,
1: oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I know, I already said it. Yep, right. yep. And it's like, so I started the process. I I've seen people finish marathons. I went to the internet, printed a picture of people crossing the finish line, you know, yay, with their arms up. And so I got the picture out, put it all over my house so I could see it. Then I jumped to the do it, you know, get new shoes, start working out, you know, a whole list of things I need to do to get ready. But the thing I realized is I'm not very good on the say it part. So I've done two of the three steps. So I'm trying to work out. And I I really don't like using the treadmill. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the treadmill for 15 minutes. Is it over yet? <laughs> <laughs> and it was winter. It was like February. I love tough. it.
0: You're so my kind of people. I would be the same way. It's like my patients too. I'm like, wait, I'm, wait, what? More? 15 minutes is a long time on a treadmill for yeah, me. How am I going to get to 20? Yeah. And I'm trying to do an hour.
1: And it's when I picked up Dr. Deb and Jack Canfield's meditation CDs. Yes, we still had CDs. (laughs) And when I'd listened to it, I could easily go 45 minutes. Mm. So that, so I started understanding that this is much more of a mind game than a physical game, too. So I try to take, you know, maybe five or six mile walks on the weekend, because walking takes a long time. And, um, I remember I was on Hamden, walking down Hamden, you know, on the fourth mile, like ready to quit, not really tired, just ready to quit. And I go, I need to write a story for my, you know, say it section. I have no stories for say it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wonder why I had no stories. So I'm walking along and, you know, just thinking, I'm so sorry I signed up for this marathon. Because I'm not a marathoner. I know I'm not a marathoner. And I thought, wait a minute, you're in the say it section. You can't do this. You can't be successful when you're not aligned with what you're seeing, what you're doing. And what you're not saying, or what you're saying, you know, opposite. I said, "Fine, I'm a marathoner." Go, oh, that was really inspiring. Mm. You know, so that's where this, you know, the authenticity comes into play. I could say I'm a marathoner, but if I don't mean it at some level, it it doesn't mean anything.
0: Was it uncomfortable to say that?
1: Oh, I could say it, but I didn't mean it because I didn't believe it.
0: Mm.
1: You know, you know. So I'm like. I'm not a marathon. Yeah, you're a marathon. You know, I'm having this little conversation to my favorite person to talk to, me.
0: <laughs> you ever have those head conversations? Yes, regularly, actually. I had it with myself this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why it said what it said, right?
1: So I'm walking there, pretty frustrated. And then it was like a voice from God that says, you are a marathoner. I mean, just like, it stopped me cold. I stopped and I looked around like, who just said that? And it just, I mean, it, it stunned me. And then it, the image of, every day of my life's a marathon. I get up early, I make breakfast, I take the kids to school, I go to work, I work on my, you know, on and on and on. And I go, I am a marathoner. I live and I complete my marathon every single day. Who says that a marathon has to be 26.2 miles? When I noticed that distinction that I could really say, because I felt every day was a marathon, I could say, I'm a marathoner, and I believe it. All of my training shifted. That's so powerful. It was like a wake-up call for me. Fast forward to June, I think it was June 6th, something like that, 2009, we did the Seattle Marathon. It was one of those non-cloudy, non raining beautiful blue sky, mm. perfect temperature day. Made just for you. Made just for us. One of the things they didn't tell us when you do the rock and roll marathon, you know, they have a band every mile. Right. Unless you walk, and by the time you get to mile 10, the bands have all gone, home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so funny. That's not fair. They should stay. You should be allowed to walk and have the music. I would think so.
1: I would think so. Anyways, we did complete the mar- marathon in seven hours and seven and a half hours about, or six and a half hours. It said seven and a half hours on the clock because it took us an hour to get to the start line because oh. there were 40,000 people at this marathon. Right. But and then we ran across the line so that I have a picture of our finishing picture. (laughs) Your hands in the air, just like like I saw, right? (laughs) And then and so that ended up being my main story in the say it section of the Mm -hmm. power of the declaration or the intention or the possibility, depending who you study. I mean, I see some type of declaration and and being in alignment, being authentic between what you see, what you say, and how you feel. I think that is the key to really fulfilling and moving towards all your
0: accomplishments. Can we talk about that just for a minute more before that we get to the do it part? Um, because I, I truly believe this is where, and I'm going to speak to women because I primarily work with women, this is where I see it, women get stuck because just as you shared, our identities sometimes are determined for us from birth. Sometimes it's ancestral identities that come down to us through parents and lineage, and sometimes it's self-imposed, right? Or it's just habit remote. I feel like that process of declaring something that you want to be or want to accomplish, if it's not what you know, is very scary. And actually, I have a friend that was sitting right where you're sitting right now today, a couple of weeks ago, that asked me a question that exactly identifies this. She said to me that there are so many women that have wonderful, brilliant ideas for businesses. Why do you think that they don't launch them? And my response was, is we have not gone inside ourselves yet to do the work, to determine our value. We have not done that. And I think that the ability to declare something different about ourselves than whether, either what society tells us or our lineage or, or, or whatever it is that we're carrying, that work is so important, but it's hard to get started. So how, how do you suggest or, want people listening to this to know that that strong declaration of being able to say it and truly mean it authentically, how do they do that when it's super, super scary?
1: Well, it's a a beautiful question, and I think I'd like to add to it a little bit in that I think that fear, I think it's all fear, fear fear-based, happens at the see it, say it, or do it piece. I think that's where there's a difference in people. So for me, I get caught up in the say it piece. Mm. Some people will say, I'm a successful businesswoman, have no dreams. They haven't seen what it looks like. They haven't created the picture.
0: Right. So you're saying there can be fear even just at the see it vision. See, there you go. I just realized, no, I don't have any problem with that. So that doesn't mean that not everybody does. (laughs) And again, (laughs) it it doesn't have to be in that order.
1: Yeah. Or there's some people that all they do is do. They do, they do. They're Mm -hmm. busy and they're running around, like they're running around in circles and they're missing either a declaration or a vision. So I think what you're talking about can happen at any piece of that process. So then the question is, so how do you get through that? And I think that was the nature of my work. It takes courage. I'm sure many of your listeners listen to Brene Brown and, and her work. But I also think, For me, the meditation and everybody can, you know, has different ways and meditate differently. Running could be your meditation or, but being a place where there's quiet just to be. If we busy ourselves so much, we never have a quiet to be. And, and there's a real difference between doing and being. And I, I don't create, like in the New Year's, I don't create New Year's resolutions. Every year I create ways of being. Mm. And then out of that becomes the doing. Right. So if I create kindness, which is what I created for the year, then as I'm looking to try to sell my business or do something with kids, my, my real intention is to do it through kindness. And that'll shape whatever you're trying to create. That's the goal of shaping. When I created in 2005, letting go was my intention. I didn't even know what that meant. It just came up in yoga. Yeah. <laughs> it's where a lot of insights come. And I created letting go, and 41 days later, my mother died. I didn't know my mother was going to die then. If I would have known, I would have never created that yeah, intention. Right. Except that was the year of learning to start letting go. Right. And so back to your question, how do you do that? I think there's a number of ways to do that. I think the first lesson that I learned is being vulnerable. Letting myself be open and be exposed. I mean, being a perfectionist tightens, tightens the shell so tight around a person like me that nothing's allowed to create anymore. I mean, you get stuck in it. So stuck, that's, I think, source of a lot of my GI problems. Mm. And so being vulnerable, I can hardly say the word, (laughs) (laughs) Is, is what allowed me to start being there and accepting help, learning from others now at a deeper level. And then the meditation was a really important piece for me of just my way of learning to... Just sit and be. And I don't sit, I actually lay to be comfortable. And everybody can do it a different way, but I just think we all need time to just be. And out of that could come a thought, a declaration, a picture, a doing, and taking just one little chunk, one little chunk at a time. I don't think there's any magic way of doing that. Right. But I think all my health problems... Looking back now, if anybody would have told me, I would have smacked them. (laughs) It wasn't a a real opportunity. It was a turning point in my life that I could have remained the victim. I don't know what would have happened if I never changed my lifestyle, my diet. I I I don't even want to think about it. Well, a different dis-ease would have come. Well, and that that was concerning. But a lot of people have these opportunities, myself included, and um, you have the choice. Take it or don't take it. Right. Nothing right, nothing wrong. It's just which choice. And then if you're going to choose it, you know, have the integrity to be behind it. If it's not going to work, then you, you always have a choice. I think that's the problem. We always think that we're, we're, we're stuck, and that might be our choice is to be stuck.
0: I think that you just hit on something really important, too, is that we do have a choice every day. Every day. We make choices all day. We think we're locked in boxes. We're not. We have choices. Yeah. Um, we try to tell it, that to my, my little
1: grandkids. Would you like to clean up your room now or would you like to wait a minute? Mm. Choice. It's no longer, I have to do anything, but right. But we do have choices, but sometimes we don't like what the choices are, but we always do have a choice.
0: You are so spiritually connected and in your body and connected to the universe that it's like I can just feel this shift that's happened in you. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And I'm I'm imagining that you have some really great things still to do. You know, I just you're you're gonna laugh. I just came back from a,
1: a weekend, this last weekend, at a wisdom course for the elders. And <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I almost didn't sign up because I'm not an elder. I love well, it. And now I'm proud to be an elder. Yeah. One with wisdom, not only creating for myself, but creating into humanity.
0: Yes. Yeah. Oh, woman. I love that. Yeah. That is amazing. And I, I, I like to think of myself as an elder too, just because I've, I've lived, I've learned. I think when we get to a place where we recognize that every day is a gift, like when we have been to the place as I have medically, different ways than you, when you get to a place where you recognize that every day on this earth is a gift and we have to make it intentionally count, I think that that's wisdom. That is just wisdom that you don't have at 20. And most people still don't have it at 30. If you're lucky by the time you hit 40, you've learned that lesson. I I think that it's it's just really important. Well, I do too. And
1: uh, really what I'm looking at, I'm hoping to create a nonprofit um, to help fund vision therapy for a lot of a lot of kids and adults that um, can't afford the treatment mm-hmm. because we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. You know, vision being our dominant sense for learning, and yet we're not really helping people function well visually. Um, glasses are great. You want to make sure the eyes are healthy, but there's so much more division beyond
0: just seeing. I'd like to, I like to re, I'm going to rephrase vision in my own head after spending time with you that vision isn't just the eyes. It's not, it's not just the eyes. We have inside as, right? You
1: just took the, the, the one line I forgot to say, vision's in the brain. Oh yeah. See, I,
0: I mean, I literally, I love that so much.
1: And really my goal, my, my last book that I've written is called expand your vision beyond sight. And it's really looking at patients who've had a variety of vision problems. And some we could really help and correct, and some we can't, but we could always help the internal vision beyond what the external vision would predict. Right.
0: So interesting. This is fascinating. I I feel like there's a bunch of side topics here that I'd like to talk to you about offline because I think it's really important. And... I am so grateful that you were willing to come on and share not just your story, but your, your experience and your journey. This is valuable.
1: Well, I thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. And truly, one of the most important things in my life now is to be mentoring, especially women on, and I'm seeing a whole different role as being a mentor, Mm -hmm. but, uh, just there's such a life out there to create. And we just need to find ways of doing that and not let those outside external voices, you know, shut us down.
0: Right. Right. Well, thank you again for joining us today. And listen, people, you—those of you that are listening—you heard it for yourself. I mean, Dr. Lynn is absolutely amazing. She um, has her own practice. So you can find her online. Go into the show notes, click on her website, and go follow her on social and connect with her. You know, ask her questions. I—I I know from my experience that she is very open to speaking to you. So I—I I recommend that you don't hesitate to even any part of the process or something that we've talked about that you want to. Die- Dive into, I know that she would be a great helper for you on your journey. And so, Dr. Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's, time has flown by. I know. I <laughs> appreciate it. I know. Sometimes when that happens, I'm like, darn it. You know, we should we should have done a two part series, but we'll do this again. I know that would love to. your journey is continuing to evolve, and your expertise and wisdom is something I'd like to bring back to the show. So, for those of you that are listening, look for Dr. Lynn again one day soon. And, my friends, you you know that we absolutely love when you go on to any of your listening platforms and give us a like and a rating and a share. We really appreciate it. It helps us get this message out in front of more people, which is our goal. So thank you for listening and we will be back. We hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, my name is Les Conley. And as producer of this show, I enjoy listening right along with you. Don't forget to download the Himalaya app and follow Grit and Grace so that we can keep you up to date on all the exciting shows coming your way. Please check the show notes for links to our guests and feel free to contact us for more information. Taver Lee is a social impact entrepreneur and she can be found at Tavar That's That's T-A-H-V-E-R-L-E-E.com. We know your time is extremely valuable and we appreciate you spending it with us. Thank you.